All right, there we are. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. If you're listening live, there's a brief pause. Apologies for that. That's good <laughs> Friday luck. Yes, exactly. Apparently. It's, a, it's a moment of reflection. There we are. That was your moment of reflection today, brought to you by The Green Majority here, CIUT 89.5 FM. Stefan is back from vacation, uh, perhaps some vacation tales in the bonus show today. Perhaps. That's, it makes perhaps. more sense. Yeah. Where was vacation? Oh, it was amazing. Uh, I hiked through the desert of Jordan. Bonus show. Yeah. Actually. Don't get yeah. me started. <laughs> uh, so here, we have, a, we have three different sections with the things you saw our guests there poke in very quickly uh that's uh steven such uh who is a documentary filmmaker how do you prefer to be uh, introduced yeah, a, a I, guest a host introdu- uh, of documentary films i would say i i wear many hats but ultimately the founder of sustainable joes like that that's kind of how how i how i describe myself i mean essentially we want to promote and steward sustainable development all right. So, and then we have a, uh, Stefan will join us in a few minutes to do a, a new section, and a new volunteer is going to come in and, and help us do a little bit of a new section at the end of the program. So that's how today is going to run. Uh, but you started talking about it right there. So uh, I was introduced to you by a mutual friend, uh, saw the trailer for uh, the film, uh, and uh, obviously there's been a project that sort of has spawned out of that on one end, and then there's also a whole bunch of stuff that led out to that. Uh, but let's start there, and then we can sort of work our way out from the center, if you will. So uh, if you want to just maybe uh, tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and uh, what is the purpose of the film, and we'll sort of work from there. I, the purpose of the film is to move our world in a more sustainable direction. I, how do we make sustainability easy for all everyday Joes and Janes of the world? I, sustainable Joes is simply a passion project of mine. Like, I mean, you guys know, and I mean, so many people I've met on the road. Like, when I ask people, do you believe our world's moving in a sustainable direction? Everybody says no. <laughs> the question, though, is, is what do we do? And so that is the primary question that we've tried to tackle in the film. So it's essentially a crash course in the space of sustainability from food to fashion, water to waste, energy to the environment to the economy. And thanks for having me today, eh, guys. I know I'm not done, but I just want to say thank you. <laughs> no, of course. And I mean, actually, that's that's sort of an interesting place to start because um, I mean, and yeah, and you know, you see that in the film, and and I think nobody who is a listener to this program is going to be surprised by that. Um, not just the fact that uh, they think so, because I'm sure our listeners would agree, but um, I don't think any of our listeners would be surprised that many people you interviewed did that, uh, answered that way as well. Well, not just the people I interviewed, like so. Two years ago, I cycled across the continent from Canada to Key West, and the precipice or the idea behind like making the film was to illustrate that people of every race, religion, and in different geographic locations all believe that something's wrong. I mean we're not talking about just our, our green majority. I'm talking about the everyday Joes and Janes that I would meet on street corners or like I cycled in my case across the continent, and so I like – couch surf there's a beautiful community called warm showers because at the end of the day when you're when you've cycled you know 60 to 120 miles like the last like all you really want is a warm shower because you want to get all the grit and grime and nastiness from from a day on the road off of you Uh, but what you also get are these beautiful dinners and conversations with people you would have never met who welcome you into your their home as a stranger and then you leave with a hug and in all of those conversations, like the stories that I really like gravitate towards from Roy in Keysville, Virginia, who literally had a gun on his hip. And yeah, he's like, hey, Stephen, you got any protection? I'm like, well, I mean, I got my pocket knife, Roy. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I could ward off like a raccoon um, to more affluent people in, in New York City, right? Like everybody believes something has to change. The question is, what do we do? And that is where, where the idea behind the, the film came from. And if, you, if anybody watches the trailer, that's how it starts. 
people of every race, religion, and geographic location answering the same way to the same question, which is, do you believe our world's operating in a sustainable manner right now? Yeah, and I think the the the, the two di- sort of divergent points from that, of course, that that make it well, it's like okay, well, if you have you know one hundred percent agreement, of course, you know this wasn't a I plus read poll with you know whatever, but you know it's the people you spoke to. There's you know one hundred percent agreement, so you know on an issue where we have one hundred percent agreement, why we can't do anything? And there's essentially two variables there, right? One of them is. Uh, how urgent is this issue? You know, well, Absolutely. how urgent is not being sustainable, which, of course, you know, the, we have our <laughs> very educated opinions here. But, you know, there's a lot of people who haven't maybe looked into this who maybe have a who maybe, you know, have a less understanding of what the science is. And, and then there's the other the side. And then there's the other side, which is what does sustainability mean? And mm-hmm. the, the reason we can't come to any consensus, I'm sure you would agree, is because people have different divergent ideas of of the urgency of the problem and the definition of the solution. Year one of the project, uh, a buddy and I, Dave Pope, we the project started with us living off grid in an urban center. The idea being, with over half of the global population living in an urban center presently, how do we like identify sustainable solutions for everyday Joes and Janes? That year, uh, I made a video talking to people on the streets, asking people, "What is sustainability to you?" And the interesting thing is, you get so many different definitions. So, how do we establish one sound definition? And from that footing, we can all move forward. And so, one of the one of the people you interviewed. Uh, um, uh, why am I blanking on his name? The politician who's right in the in the front of the trailer. Uh, so that's the minister of the environment and climate change for the province Glenn of Murray, Ontario. Of course, yeah. yeah. I just Glenn blanked Murray. for a moment. And oh, so, good. one of the things that sort of. Um, that I've always found really interesting because Stefan and I have been doing a number of things. We were, I was actually recently watched uh, – I made it – a clip of me at the protest we went to or the action that we went to in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. made it into a, a documentary recently. And so I, uh, the filmmaker was in contact with me and I got to watch a clip of me being interviewed outside the church or whatever. Beautiful. And it, yeah, it was really fun and it was sort of like um, nostalgic. But it was sort of this idea a little bit too of that – just because of there's this funny idea, I think we have like a, a lot of solutions, but uh, again, there's no sort of clear thing and there's no like political outlet for it in the sense yep. that, you know, even to the extent that, you know, we talk about in Canada, there's uh, a Green Party. The Green Party is still uh, because they're, you know, trying to straddle solving a very uh, problem that doesn't have a current doesn't have a solution that fits into our current system, right? There's no easy, and I know Tim Nash would probably, you know, not really like me saying this, one of our our guests here, but like there's no simple translation of, aha, we just apply the market here and this solves the problem. There's a way to do that in sort of like the long path, but there's no sort of like a revolutionize the world, change it overnight solution there to the speed that we need this thing. So there's no real political outlet. And so what you have is all these people sort of milling around, sort of trying to find their own solutions, which is very, very important. We have to do that because we have to take action. But at the same point, it also makes it very hard to sort of see the resolution, right? And so one of the themes that you were talking about a lot on the film there is is hope when you're interviewing uh, the um, the guy from uh, Sea Shepherd. Captain too. Paul Watson. Yeah, talking about just that idea of hope and and is that, you know, is that that all we have some days? I don't know when I wake up. <laughs> some days I wake up and I feel really energized like we're going to save the world. And some days I wake up and think maybe, you know, hope is all we have. So yeah, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. So, I mean, from interviewing all those people and speaking to all those people, what were your what were your reflections? What were people saying about just that idea of hope? Some some beautiful things. I mean, to address kind of all the points, I think that the. the the idea behind the film is hope and solutions. You know, we've all heard that doom and gloom narrative and I think we're all tired of it. I mean, I know I am right. And so like, it's not about, okay, here's the situation. Yes. Let's identify the situation, but 
then how do we move forward? And yes, top-down policy reform all day long. If we can have politicians who can put in, in act policy that allows people to prosper economically, uh, you know, stewards the environment and, and is socially inclusive, that would be great. But on a four-year you know, term cycle, it's really hard to put in that policy. So we actually, in the film, the twist, which most a lot of people have responded well to, is the behavioral dynamic. So we introduce Dr. Dan Ariely. He's a world-renowned behavioral economist from Duke University, writes for the Wall Street Journal, three New York Times bestsellers, documentary on Netflix. The man is a genius. But what Dan does, he has two PhDs, one in psychology and one in business administration. He takes the why we do what we do and he relates it to our current society. Um, and that is where I found hope. Because, you know, one thing that we didn't include in the documentary, a little treat for you guys, but is that Dan said, okay, the, the two ways to actually enact long-term change, he's like, you look at religion, they, they do it because they scare people into like the, the what's coming next, like when you die. And two, he's like, not that I advocate for this because I don't, but dictators, because they keep their, their people content enough and they can enact a policy that might not be that uh, fond of or smiled upon today, but that in the long run, 40 years down the road, with a, a longer perspective, cares and puts them in the position that they want to be. So the question is, how do we get there with our, our you know, democracy, which we support? Um, when it comes to hope, you know, Captain Paul Watson, and you, you see this in the trailer as well, you know, I, like, I'm like, so are we... Are we euchred, Captain Watson? And he's like, well, whenever you face an impossible problem, and make no mistake, this is an impossible problem, you just have to find an impossible solution. So if we can create the impossible problem, I believe we can also find the impossible solution. Well, and I think what's, what he meant by that, or at least the way I'm choosing to interpret what he meant by that, was that, you know, when, when people are saying impossible, they mean like impossible, like in that, like, oh, that'll never fly in this current political climate, sort of impossible, right? When it seems overwhelming, right? Yeah. But I mean, like, again, if, if enough people start saying the, the same thing and are willing to walk the talk, not just like, I mean, talk's great, but I mean, action is what I'm about. So in, in the film, again, like, okay, here's the situation, seems ominous, seems overwhelming, doom and gloomy, but here are three things you can also do to have a positive impact. Like you, Darren, and Stefan, today, this is what you, we can do. And some of them are, are simple, like LED light bulbs. You know, uh, we've all heard that a million times. But some of them, like, did you know that cats eat more fish than all the world seals put together? That's one thing Captain Watson said. I was like, oh, there you go. Simple solution. Find non-fish feed for your feline. Stamp it. Done. Like, you want to have a positive impact on the ocean? Like, do that. I mean, we break, again, down the film from food to fashion, water to waste. Energy, the environment, the economy. I mean, when it comes to people, I had an interview on our podcast the other day um, with the CEO of Bullfrog Power, Ron Seftel, and he was saying how even right now we have like climate refugees in Canada, look out west, fires, floods. You know, we so frequently don't see the impact of climate change in our world right now, and we, especially in the developed country or in developed countries. In Key West, we have the sustainability coordinator in the film, Allison Higgins. She's the sustainability coordinator for the city of Key West. And she's like, Stephen, right now we have 11 intersections that flood monthly. So, like, I mean, they're seeing the impact of, of climate change and, and global sea level rise. Like, imagine, like, water bubbling up through your storm drains. 
So the, there was a there was a theory which which drove me insane then and and now makes me even more insane um, because <laughs> it, because it. it led to real damage. I know that's quite the you know the lead that I'm throwing out there, but and it was the, it was the fact that and this was you know reported uh, widely to some degree uh, that there was a you know some degree of Donald Trump voters were people who were theoretically progressive lefties who said, well, we know we have guaranteed corruption with Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Uh, I'm going to go for the wild card because worst case scenario he. He's actually as hideous as he sounds like he is, and that will be such a catalyst for the left that the counterwave to that is going – that will be the revolution that we ride to, you know, off into the sunset. Uh, I think that's Russian roulette. Yeah, um, if we get there. That's so what like best case scenario, you were, they, people were voting for Russian roulette, so I think that's a terrible idea. But to the extent – I mean you know, where we're talking about like all these things, I've seen more and more people sort of realizing – and I don't mean more and more people as in like my colleagues, right? Like people sort of my age and younger basically almost universally get it unless they you know, are, live in a bubble somewhere, right? But the older people, basically older than me roughly, um, are the people who have like a lot of this authority. And what I'm, what I'm noticing is that – and I mean societally, right? So people and politicians, people who own, who own major businesses, that sort of thing. Yep. And what I'm, what I'm noticing more and more is not – I haven't really seen – more than the first little trickle of these very influential, very powerful people, not just saying a nice speech about, you know, climate change, but actually really making significant, like, revolutionary, like, wow, it's, you know, headline news that some big company is doing something. They're not really making the changes, but I'm starting to hear them sort of like, it's like you can hear them thinking when they're doing an an interview or something like that about, you know, how are you going to adapt to climate change, where they're like, you can hear them realizing in real time that the system that they're operating in, when they go to say, well, you know, I can't do that because and – and they said it's like the first time they ever realized they were in this bl- glass box and that there are all these limits and that will – like they're figuring out in real time that, oh, yeah, there's some downsides to this system. And I wonder – I wonder if – you know, now that we have – we've already had to sort of swallow and accept Donald Trump – is that the case that we make? Do you think playing off that and saying, look, like this is the, the most transparent effect of, you know, the wrong way to do things ever. Can we finally make this a not sort of like lefty righty thing and just say, OK, let's, you know, let's stop arguing about social issues for five minutes. Hmm. And uh, for, you know, as a queer person, uh, that's me saying <laughs> that's me saying I'll put my issue aside for five minutes. I'm not saying let's roll it back to the 1950s. I'm saying like. Let's stop for five seconds, get all these people who just generally agree that the system's broken, fix the system, and then come back to some of these longer-term things because it's just more, you know, climate change has to do with the continuance of all life on Earth. And and that's sort of my main thing. And the the thing that I was referencing to that earlier clip, basically my one clip that they used from that film before, was this thing about, like, you know, we can have an argument about how to solve the problem, but there's no disagreement that there's a problem. Do Do you think that as you've been going around and doing these podcasts and doing this conversation that there is just a general realization that it's not just a matter of building more solar farms, but that the system itself is actually just not sufficient to the task? Everybody recognizes that things need to change. One of the most beautiful things Minister Murray said to me, he's like, you know, Stephen, I love jazz. I love graffiti in the back alley. But if we don't get this one thing right, when when we're talking about sustainability, sustainable development and climate change, he's like, all of our progress forward as a species will be for naught. Ikea is in my film. I did, there, there was never, like four years ago, I would have never imagined I would have been willing to have Ikea in my film. And nor, nor was I expecting them to tell me that like they're, they're already 100% powered by renewables in Canada. Actually blew my mind. 
I mean, you know, we have studies out of California. It was highlighted in the CBC um, that like we could transition our entire world to renewables, but they feel that there is a there's not the political or social will. Uh, recognizing that everybody says yes, there is a problem, and no, our world is not operating in a sustainable manner, and yet that change is not happening fast enough. You know, for for those of us sitting here, yeah, I would say our system's slightly broken, but I also think it's the best system that we've had to date. So how do we, you know, how do we continue to improve? How do we maintain our our positivity and optimism, and do better? So, I mean, and what does, what does the, the next system look like? Like, there's a question back to you. Like, I don't know what that next system looks like other than a system that, you know, empowers people to prosper economically, stewards the environment, and is socially inclusive. You know, queer issue, you know, put aside or front and center. Like, how are we, you know, every, for everybody who's listening, like two of my like, closest friends are here, DeAndre and Heather, they're a, a lesbian couple. Like, it, love is love and people are people and Regardless of where you are on the planet, another analogy Captain Watson shared with me is like, Stephen, when I'm at sea, and this goes back to regardless of where you are on the planet, I promise you it'll come full circle. He's like, when I'm at sea and I'm on a boat, I know exactly how many resources we have. We run out of resources, like we'll head back to a port. Earth is essentially humanity's spaceship, and the sea, in this case, is space. He's like, but when we're out of resources, we don't have a port to go to. So we better figure out what the system is and we better figure it out quite quickly because over half of our global population lives within what 60 kilometers, 35 miles of a coast, right? So when sea levels rise, where do, you, where do we think those people are going to go? All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Stephen uh, Such uh, from Sustainable Joes. You can check that out. Uh, why don't you list off the website, let people know where they can listen to the podcast. You've already teased that maybe we'll be guests someday. So maybe, yeah, uh, totally. Maybe you guys that. are absolutely going to be on the podcast. Uh, promote uh, yourself. You have 30 seconds. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I mean, the idea, of the, the idea of the podcast is designing tomorrow, creating a sustainable future for all, told by the people who are building it today. So we'll talk to innovators, entrepreneurs, um, celebrities, and politicians about what they stand for, the ups, the downs. We'll talk to guys like you. Like, what have you seen? What, what has been working? And how do we accelerate that growth? You know, Sustainable Joe's in its mission is to accelerate the advent and implementation of global sustainable solutions, simply put, to make sustainability easy for all everyday Joes and Janes of the world. If anybody wants to find us, go to Sustainable Joes. Uh, it is plural because whether you are a group of Josephs or Joannes, <laughs> we're all a group of Joes. <laughs> Um, and we're also uh, obviously Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. Everything is at Sustainable Joe's. Right. And I want to, oh, if I may, shout out to Buns because Buns, uh, the Buns Trading Zone, bringing back the barter. Uh, they're hosting my podcast uh, and promoting it and Steam Whistles on board. So we, gentlemen, actually, in, in my, my version of a, a podcast, we get to have green beers and green chats. So thank you to <laughs> Buns and thank you to Steam Whistle and to everybody who's uh, – Supported the podcast, um, like Lifford Wine and Spirits, like Bullfrog Power, and the Water Brothers. All right. And you will be links to all that on the website as well. You Absolutely. can do that at uh, greenmajority.ca. We're going to go now to our first uh, music break. Kai is going to tell us what we're going to listen to. All right. It's a beautiful Friday morning. We're going to be listening to Joni Mitchell today with Slouching Towards Bethlehem.
within the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. And a blood dim tide is loosed upon the world. Nothing is sacred. The ceremony sinks. Innocence is drowned in anarchy. The best black conviction. Some time to think, and the worst are full of passion without mercy. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely it's a second coming, and the wrath has finally taken form. For who is this far east? It's our come at last. And we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, you can uh, also check out links to the, our previous guests that will be on the uh, the webpage as well. You can do that at greenmajority.ca. But Stefan is back. I am. And uh, so I'm sure everybody missed him. I don't want to take any more of his time. <laughs> so, uh, Stefan, why don't you tell people what you're going to talk about this week? Thanks so much. Uh, so I'm going to talk about coal uh, and specifically the sort of – the, the, the title I came up with this was The Baffling Economics of the Attempted Coal Revival, uh, specifically due to the fact that there's a – of course, with, with Donald Trump and the, and the new EPA and everything else like that, um, there's been a lot of talk of, 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 of reviving the coal industry. Uh, and it's not, it's, not just, uh, it's not just an American thing. There's, there's some it's, – it's it's, it's, there are some other places around the globe as well. So I'm going to jump into that a little bit. Uh, but to start with just – just the, you know, there's always like a line that sort of brings me to rage, and then I and then I research a bunch of stuff, and then that's what causes these things. And today's it's a uh, it's from Scott Pruitt, uh, the head of the the US EPA. Uh, you know, again, the the head of the US EPA who is somehow worse on climate than the former Exxon CEO that they have as Secretary of State, because uh, at least Tillerson accepts climate change. Um, but so he he said the new agenda for the EPA is quote unquote back to basics. Uh, and uh, it would focus on devolving oversight of the clean air and water uh, to individual states and bolstering jobs in industries such as coal, oil, and gas. Uh, that is apparently what the basics of the EPA is. Apparently, I, I, didn't know, I didn't know this, that when we created the EPA, the goal was to uh, increase jobs in coal, oil, and gas. Uh, but apparently, that's what it is. Uh, at least according to Scott Pruitt. So this is, so, so this is, this is where we're headed. Uh, and and just to, just to underline the uh, the sheer irony of, of of this, and I was having this conversation actually with my with like my, with my cousin uh, yesterday who lives in the states about how what bothers me perhaps the most about the Trump administration uh, is that they 
they manage to fail so often, but in the least interesting of ways. And they still manage to make the world a dramatically worse place without, like, if you're going to take all norms not seriously, do something fun with your refusal to accept norms. You know, have a Sean Spicer lookalike standing directly beside Sean Spicer making fun of him the entire press conference. Like, do something fun with this if you're going to reject all norms. But instead, they do things like this, which is have their, which is have Scott Pruitt, again, the head of the US EPA, make an announcement about the future of the EPA in a mine. Uh, the Harvey mine, for, for example, for, for, for instance, not example, that's the mine. Uh, and this mine exists in a complex run by Consul Energy. And of course, Consul Energy is a company that was fined $3 million last year beca- by, the, by a joint investigation of the EPA and the Justice Department because they discharged contaminated wastewater into streams that flow into the Ohio River. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense that the EPA head come, goes to a place that has just been fined $3 million by the EPA uh, and says, we're going to go back to basics by stopping doing what we do, uh, is apparently how we're, where we're at now. Uh, and in, in, in the settlement that actually was divulged in this sort of gone, gone back and forth, uh, it became clear that the mining operation exceeded uh, – effluent limits at least 188 times between 2006 and 2015. This is the mine and the the company that he decided to make this speech in. So basically... Like the surface level of veneer that him, he basically did not come and say, you can now dump anything you want. That is what my new EPA lets you do is, 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 is eroding in front of our eyes. Do we have time for a quick sarcastic comment, Stefan? Sure, go for it. Uh, if we're going back to basics, maybe uh, get rid of all those big trucks and uh, let's use some pickaxes. Yeah. Mind yeah. that coal. Back to basics. <laughs> back to basics. Yeah. Um, but again, sure. Coal. You know, why not? Um, and, and again, it's not just in the States. Uh, Australia is currently uh, looking at this, uh, one of the largest, uh, co- uh, one of the biggest coal extraction projects anywhere on the planet uh, called, back to, called the Adani Corporation's bid to open a $21.7 billion carmichael mine, uh, which would be near Rockhampton in Australia. Uh, and, of course, the, gov- the government there also is supporting it. Queensland Labor government is, 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 is supporting this. Um, and if it goes ahead, it would unleash 128 million tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere each year of its operation, which would be basically a tr- equivalent to 25% of Australia's total emission from fuel combustion. So this is, this is, and this is all in an age where we're all talking at a higher level as if we're actually going to do something. Um, and yet these, this is where we're at in this sort of attempts to do coal. So, so let's let, let's actually investigate this though. That, that's that, that's where we're at right now. There's there's this there's all this talk surrounding the fact that we are going to revive the coal industry. Uh, so what is the coal industry uh, in Australia? Uh, it employs about fifty four, a little. I'll give them a little bump. Fifty five thousand people, full time, directing coal. Um, and in comparison, that's a, that's a fair number of people. You know, it's not that's not nobody. That's you know. Two thirds, maybe, if I math correctly, probably should be more like three quarters of the students who currently go to the University of Toronto. Um, you know, it's not no one. Now, at the same time, uh, the Great Barrier Reef, which scientists have said m- is only savable uh, if we immediately curb uh, emissions, uh, it was, employs about 69,000 people. 
So this is the entire – this is the coal industry of uh, – that has 50 – like as about 10 – 15 actually, about 15,000 less people mining than the people who are, who, who are really just acting as you know, tour guides and, and all the different things revolving around this industry that will – that is you – know, that scientists are consistently more and more concerned about every year as we get closer and closer to, to the, where it actually might die. Well, let's and let's just remind people, Stefan. Like while we're going back to basics here, uh, that uh, you know, why do we have jobs? Let's get really real country <laughs> here. Why do we have jobs? We have jobs to provide resources, an important and life requirement of uh, the use of those resources. You know, we have uh, our t- big screen TVs here in North America, and maybe there's uh, you know frivolous items the world round. But at, at the basic, it's food, right? And without the ocean, we don't have food <laughs> so uh back to basics uh to me means let's not wipe out our food source let's mm. not poison the oceans let's not kill off all other life because we require it to survive and i this is the thing that like it just it makes me throw my hands up in the air and wail like a crazy person because it's like how can you have a serious discussion with serious people making serious long-term decisions that like refuse to acknowledge the requirement of like food to live and things like having an access to water is more important than the you know people having jobs now people are going to freak out at that be like no well okay you can everyone in the world could be employed but if there's no food it doesn't matter we're all going to die right so and i just i just don't get it i don't understand how people can be so easily fooled by such a nonsensical talking point well, the you know, there's a it's human which is ingenuity, of course, which is of course not to say I just have to yeah. I just have to add this, which is of course not to say that jobs are not important. <laughs> it's that you have to factor in both of those things, right? But let's let, let's you know let's let's ignore the fact that we're all dying on a on dying planet, uh, and just <laughs> and, and, and specifically and specifically discuss job creation. Welcome back, Stephen. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, because what's great about what's, what what I think is fascinating about this about this conversation um, is is that. It, the math still doesn't add up. So, uh, e- so in in even even someone like Robert Murray, and so Robert Murray uh, is the founder and chief executive of Murray Energy, uh, which is one of the larger coal uh, companies in in the, in the United States. Um, and and he is he is he has quotes such as things like we do not have a climate change or global warming problem we have an energy cost problem, uh, that is a real quote that he said, um, and so that is the kind of person we're discussing in this sentence or in this in this instance, and even he, when he hears Donald Trump say things like we're going to revive the coal industry we are going to save the coal industry all the miners will go back to work all these sort of things even he is like whoa, whoa whoa whoa. Maybe, maybe, maybe tone that down a little there, Donald. Um, because it was like, so when, like, and it, it, what's already existed, let's, let's, let's like put in context, what has happened over, when Obama, when Obama came into power, coal provided about 52% of U.S. electricity. Uh, it's now down to about 30%. Uh, and, and the fall down is, is, is again, this isn't – everyone wants to – especially the, probably both the left and the right want to claim that this has a lot to do with Obama's you know, EPA regulations and stuff like that. And that certainly had an impact. But it also really had to do with the fact that there was massive competition, competition from cheap shale gas um, and, and then, and then the, and the power plants that were sort of slowly closed. Um, over not only because that they because that they were sort of you know that they didn't fit the regulations and the regulations were sort of making it harder to make them profitable, but also just because they was 
they were old and there was cheaper alternatives. And so they, we didn't replace them with more coal plants. Um, in fact, like 411 coal fire power plants closed under Obama's administration and more than 50 coal companies went bankrupt. You know what might be a good um, sort of like metaphor for that is the when you know when uh, when new uh, car regulations come out right and so say uh, and I think this happened in Ontario uh, a few years ago and maybe it's a rolling thing I, I don't drive so I don't really pay attention to this sort of thing but I was aware at least once of this happening where some sort of new like uh, requirement of for exhaust was was brought out and everybody had to either get rid of their car any car after a certain year had to be basically had to be couldn't be resold or something so they weren't forcibly taken off the road but they were effectively legislated out of existence and so this is sort of i think a good metaphor for this which is that you know if you have a car and you can get another six months or a year out of it even if it's you know polluting long term or if it's really cost maybe it's really inefficient on gas long term um you know but the 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 math works out in such a way that it's still you know cheaper for you to, to own it for another six months and then replace it than it is to to do it even though that's terrible for the environment it ends up being a little cheaper so that's what m- many people will do out of self-interest right but then you pass a law saying okay well no we're actually not going to let you do that you were going to have to buy a new car anyway this was already it was just this sl- slight math problem and really all the thing the legislation did this le- just legislation didn't like you know ban a certain type of thing and oh no we were going to have this for 20 years and now you rob me it was like instead of buying a new car a year from now you had to buy it today but you were still going to have to buy a new car and it's the same thing with the coal plants right they were already dying they were already on this withdrawal they were just sort of like given a little shove well and and and, and, and in the history, the coal plants would have been replaced by new coal plants, and yet there was cheaper and better and different alternatives, which is which is what led to the total number of, of coal fire plants uh, decreasing. When, when a lot like, of it's being replaced with now is natural gas. Yeah, no, oh yeah the yeah. massive increase of natural gas. Yeah, just that massive percentage of that is natural gas. Um, but – so, so again, to get to back into this, into this thought process, um, this is the this is Murray, uh, Robert Murray, he's the founder and chief executive of, of Murray Energy, entirely just basically you know a, a coal head through and through. Um, even he says that while new plants uh, using quote unquote clean coal technologies, which again I'm not going to get into, but is dumb, um, uh, could soon be built. He doesn't actually expect that coal's share of the market will rise significantly in the future. This is the guy whose entire livelihood is based off of making money off coal, saying, "I don't actually think coal is going up." Um, and, and and this is like when the person whose entire livelihood is based off that is disagreeing with with the president of the United States, who says, "We are going to do this." There, you have to start asking yourself, "Okay, uh, what? Why? What? Where are we sitting? What are we doing?" Uh, and when you look at where the market is now, um, you can see why. It's 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 almost transparent. You know, the 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 International Energy Agency uh, forca- forecast the United States will actually almost another hundred million tons of coal demand uh, will decrease between now and twenty twenty one, and 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 that's another hundred million tons of decrease uh, or a fewer uh, demand than existed uh, now. But even between twenty, that, that's actually added on top of three hundred megatons that have decreased between 2007 and 2015. So the United States is just moving off of coal. That's, that's apparent. Um, and I think the argument becomes then, okay, well, where the, where's the world going? Uh, Maybe what's actually happening is just because the United States is going off, you know, the United States is in everything, they're not the growing market. Everyone knows that China is the, is, is the largest coal, produ- the l- l- largest coal consumer. Um, and then you, so, so let's shift our, our, our uh, focus to China. International Energy Agency um, thinks that China's coal consumption probably peaked about four years ago in 2013. Um, 
And, and why does that matter? Uh, it's because the, they actually expect that the, in 2021, cold demand in China will be even less than it was in 2013. And yet still, even with that fact, it will still account for almost 50% of global demand and 45% of production, which means that this is this, – even, even if you go for the one most coal-obsessed country in the world, that is 50% of the market, it is still going down. And yet you have politician after politician after politician saying we're going to revive it. And what's, what's even more astounding – about those sort of calls that this will be the revival is when you look at the numbers of who's actually currently employed and, and the numbers of, of, of people that, have, that, that, are, that are being employed in different sectors. And we get, it comes down to the sort of sense of you know, nostalgia, basically, of what a real job looks like uh, or of what, you know, of what a real America looks like. Because coal mining in 2015 employed just under 100,000 people. Uh, in the United States, according to Mine Safety and Health Administration. Um, just under 100,000 people. That's down from 127,000 people uh, in 2008, the year Obama was elected, and down from 250,000 people in the 1970s. So this is not just a short-term trend. And I'm sure a bunch of, the, a bunch of that sort of the degrees from 250,000 250, in half to 127,000 uh, is through automation. But still, this is 100,000 people. And, 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 and that's the entire people who are coal miners. And yet these, this, they, they are treated as if they are uh, a massive subset of America. You know, that the coal miners of America are this huge percentage of, 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 the, of the country that, that the Democrats failed to pay attention to and therefore lost. Um, and yet they barely would have swung if they all if every single coal miner moved to the one state Hillary lost by the fewest votes, they still only barely would have tipped Wisconsin. Well, let's and to be fair, though, let's let's say coal miners and their families. So let's say 400,000 people. Sure. Right. Um, but then but then but then you look at but then you look at the who where, like so who is employing people? Uh, solar energy employed 374,000 people in 2015 to 2016. Almost, and it's growing. It, 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 that was an increase of something like twenty something percent uh, over the year before, which means that we're looking at probably about four times the number of solar uh, people working in solar energy than coal miners, and yet there's just no discussion as if these people are the uh, you know are the are the heart of an American economy, or that these people are a part of this sort of real America. Uh, real America only exists in these jobs that existed. Hundred, you know, 50, 60 years ago in this sort of mythical land of great, when America was quote unquote great. Um, and, and yet it's just not the reality. And, and I think that the question for me in the end, which is what I'll sort of I'll leave uh, with, the, with the audience, is to start thinking about how and why we have these perceptions. You know, why, why can uh, a government uh, or why can, why can Donald Trump come out and say that we are going to that the way he cares about the workers is to revive the coal industry as if as if reviving the coal industry is somehow great for workers because coal mining is well known as a fantastic and great job like coal mining is not an easy job coal mining is terrible 
uh, and like and the idea that we could that we could move from coal mining to almost anything else is an improvement on the person who is has a job's life. There are I can only imagine there are only very few jobs that are that are actively worse for the person who is doing them than coal mining. Um, and so the idea that we might lose these jobs but gain other jobs is a benefit, not a loss. Well, that's the thing, and I, I don't know, Stefan, if you have a thought about this, but like why – I mean it's something I've said on the program 50,000 times, but why – I don't understand why no one else has said it, especially when this is an increasingly small number of people, which is to say, look, there's 75,000 or there's 100,000 or there's 125,000 people in the U.S. Uh, so talking about you know the U.S. and coal in this instance, but I've made this argument in Canada with, with pipelines and whatnot, uh, saying – Okay, well, there's this many people. We don't want them to be out of work, but this is a line of work that we can't justify. So we don't want to throw those people overboard. So we're just going to pay to retrain all those people. Yeah, it's going to cost a bunch of money, but it's a hell of a lot cheaper than the cost of paying for climate change down the road. And then if you go to all those people and say, look, not a single one of you is going to lose your job. Worst case scenario, we're going to put you on, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, what's, I want to say Medicaid, but that's the wrong word. But uh, you know, unemployment plus, right? You're gonna, we're just gonna, we're just gonna grant you your average pay for until you know, if you're if you're retiring in five years, we're just gonna pay you out, and just put an end to this industry. And the the three or five fabulously wealth wealthy billionaires that own these companies suck it up. Too bad you made a ton of money and and now you know go invest your money somewhere else. And all the all the people who are all used as human shields to prevent actual real policy change. We're just going to – we're going to essentially buy you out. Then there's no opposition. Uh, Carson, who, who hasn't spoken yet, I think wants to jump in. You want to jump in here, Carson? Yeah. It, like the – just talking about jobs for for some of these projects is deceptive, right? Because it's not just about creating jobs. It's about creating a, a sustainable industry and a sustainable company. It's reminiscent of some of the pipeline discussions from a few years back. There's a big argument for the pipeline saying that – it would create X number of jobs for X number of people. Um, I, I remember Andrew Leach, he was a, he's an energy economist. He, on Twitter, he would snarkily say, well, if jobs are all we care about, why don't we just have a bucket brigade of people, <laughs> buckets of oil, walking across the country? So when they frame the rhetoric around just creating jobs, you're only looking at one half of the economic equation. You have to look at how much value are we providing from those jobs and can the company survive? All right, and uh, do you want to wrap up? We're actually yeah, at forty-five for sure. and one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. um, well, exactly. Like so, like there's there's so many pieces to this to this this puzzle, and I think what's what I what I come down to in the end is this question of like yes, a. Uh, can't, like, like uh, we, can, we can have an entire conversation almost about like we can even I think what we as environmentalists often try to do is we we spend our time talking about sort of like you know the you know can, can we all live on a dying planet um, and then and 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 then we feel like okay we're just talking to ourselves so then we shift and ha- try to have we try to start speaking the language of uh, of of jobs you know like okay okay, okay you want you want to you want to fight on jobs I will shift my entire language process to have this conversation about what job creation looks like right now and I we can. Still win this argument, um, and yet, and yet, and, and yet, there's a question of the of the almost the populism that were of 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 coal mining or of these sort of these sort of jobs that that harken back to 60, 70 years ago that remains powerful to a certain subset of of the world, um, and and we have to address why that's the case. Like, why are the people working on solar panels not considered the blue collar America that it matters, uh, and how can we change that perception? Because because if we don't, we get we still get you know 
the pandering to business is we're going to let you dump stuff in Ohio River rather than we're going to make a good place to have some solar panels. All right. Well, you had a quick tease there from Carson. Carson joined us virtually a couple of weeks ago via Sabina. Uh, you just heard him live there in the studio before I had a chance to properly introduce him. So welcome, Carson. Uh, but uh, we're going to take a quick break. And Carson's going to come back and help us close out the program by telling us about Shell, the Niger Delta, and money laundering. It's going to be great. We'll be right back after Megan tells us what we're going to listen to. So for our second music break, we're going to be listening to Feist. This is How Come You Never Go There. Feist's new album will be out at the end of April. listening to the green majority here on ciut 89.5 fm on one of our wonderful community radio partners uh, all across the country now in canada and our uh, steph and i was checking out our metadata recently do you know Ooh. that almost uh we've reached almost a third of our total uh off-air listeners are americans really so uh that was for you uh coal section <laughs> exactly listeners. welcome to the program and uh and thank you for downloading the podcast uh carson the last 15 minutes is yours debut take it away all right so uh, this story is is about Shell in Nigeria. It's uh, it's a long one, or it, it's it's been going on for a while. But there were some exciting developments last week. So Shell's been in Nigeria for for sixty years, seventy years, having uh, oil and gas operations there. A few years back, uh, they partnered with ENI, an Italian uh, oil and gas company, and they paid one point three billion to the Nigerian government for a license to operate in this uh, highly coveted field, OPL245. It's got 9 billion barrels of oil worth in today's prices at about $500 billion. Uh, this is just off the coast of the Niger Delta. And when soon after uh, this purchase, there was $1 billion that flowed from Nigeria to a company called Malibu. Now, Malibu, uh, hang on with me here. So Malibu... <laughs> is owned by Dan Eteti. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Dan Eteti, at the time, was the petroleum minister of Nigeria. So red flags went up, uh, lawyers got involved, and there are allegations that uh, Shell had provided money to this company knowingly, uh, knowingly that, knowing that this money would be used for bribes, uh, and knowing that uh, Dan Eteti was a money launderer. Um, he was later convicted of money laundering for a separate issue. So we'll, we'll keep that separate. But um, So this went on for years. The Shell offices were raided. Uh, but just last month, there was, I guess it was inconclusive, or there's no evidence of wrongdoing. And so uh, 
control was given back to Shell and ENI for the oil field. They were gearing up for operations. But then just last week, uh, there were leaked emails that the BBC recovered showing that around the time of 2010, 2011, that's around the time the deal was made, the top execs at Shell actually had knowledge that the money paid to the government was used for uh, bribery and that it would be passing through a money launderer. So uh, two days after that, the... uh, uh, a spokesperson for Shell responded saying, yes, they admitted it. For years, they had denied any wrongdoing. Evidence came out. Obviously, they have to, they have to admit it. So on April 20th, we're going to see um, the Italian courts are going to decide if they're going to proceed with criminal charges. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I mean, the corruption in oil and gas in Nigeria is nothing new. I think the big kicker here is that at the time when they made this deal in 2011, they were already on probation with the U.S. government for a different corruption case. They were paying a $30 million settlement. They were uh, under orders to follow strict anti-corruption guidelines. Yet they still had the guts to do this. Now, the, the question I pose to the group here is, why does this keep happening? <laughs> <laughs> Did you? I, I did not send Carson that question, but knowing <laughs> that I would love that. Stefan, I'll let you go first. Right. Well, it's why does it keep happening? It, it, there's, there's, there's so many reasons. Uh, but I think the the, the, the the shortest and simplest one is that we've created a system in which making the most money possible is the best thing you can do. Uh, and what's what's funny about this is that like the the way we punish these large companies that that you know that act poorly, shall we say, as we find them. Uh, we find them money, which usually is less money than they made by doing the thing that they're doing. Like, like it's, it's, one of those, it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those situations in which we've created a system where you can understand logically why they are doing it. Like, it's, you know, if, if, if I tell you that you can go out and you know, abuse your power uh, and, and, and act in ways that are 100% um, improper, uh, and and we will find you, and we will we'll, we'll catch you, and we'll find you three hundred million dollars. Uh, and you know, doing so will make you more money than that, um, and that no one will then stop you from doing it again. Um, and you can continue to do this. Uh, there is at that point you you have the you've lost the power to effectively regulate like it's it, it's no different than simply having a tax, right? The fact that their sales tax doesn't stop commerce; it's just the cost of doing business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it they just, it's literally, and we're not even being. I'm not even being cynical here. I mean, Ford, the little example with the Ford with the cars. They knew their cars were flawed and were killing people, and they did calculus and said it's cheaper to absorb this than it is to recall the cars. And it was that cold. I mean, I'm not. I'm not putting on sort of my like lefty spin on it. That's literally what happened. And this is another case of that. Yeah, and I think the and and I think the, the yeah the situation becomes comes difficult to, to, to fully to fully appreciate uh, because at some point you're, you're you're dealing with this sort of system in which there isn't a there isn't an effective uh, stopgap measure um, and, and, and of course it's, it's not surprising that this is happening somewhere else right there's a level of also which that like the fact that this happened in Nigeria I'm sure allows it to be dramatically more uh, dramatically worse. Because because the because the, the the powers that be that have actual any real control over Shell um, are 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 not there. 
you know, they're not, and, and they care less about the people who live in Nigeria. You know, this is no question the United States government cares less about the people who live in Nigeria than they do the, pe- the people who live in the States. You know, even they, they don't really care about that, but that's a different question. Like, we, the question really becomes, how do you create a system which, which never has the, has the, has the company being more powerful than the state? You know, the, the idea that Shell can come in and, 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 and come out uh, of Nigeria um, and, and sort of do what it likes, um, you know, as long as it pays the right people. Um, the, that fact or the way that that works through bribery will always exist if the company coming in has more power than the, than the state that they're living in or the state that they're working in. Um, and so th- it's, a, it's a classic question of, you know, originally the classic question was this combination battle between uh, how does states, how do, you, how do you make sure the states are powerful enough to regulate business, but not so powerful that, that, that they can control and take over the businesses, right? There's this tension that exists within all society. Right. Um, and, but I think it, 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 the, whole, the whole difficulty uh, expands once, once you can have a, a company that, like, when, like there's, Nigeria has no effective mode of regulating. Uh, a company like Shell, um, because Shell has so much more movability. You know, Shell can just Shell can come in, they can leave, uh, they can they can they 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 have a mobility that you just don't doesn't exist or didn't exist when we started talking about this conversation. Didn't exist when a lot of the sort of uh, the companies that the countries that sort of you know developed Shell in the first place. And then, and then in the, the possible most perverse piece of this is. You then talk to what development agencies or what development organizations uh, within, say, you know, Canada or the United States or any of these uh, any the more quote, more quote unquote developed agencies um, or developed countries. Um, what they see as as their developing interest is supporting their companies do this to other countries. You know, like there's not like a you know it, it's 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 not just that you know that Canadian mining companies are going into other countries um, and 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 ignoring what people are saying. It's that Canadian can, the Canadian government is going out and promoting these companies. It's, it's a level of sort of colonial imperialism that exists th- that we ourselves are not only we, like we are then sort of quote unquote or we are ha- charged with regulating them, but also in charge of promoting them at the exact same time, um, which creates this perverse system where yeah like if this happens i like i have no question this will happen again there's just not there's just right. no part of me that thinks it's not gonna happen again or it was not it was not currently continue happening yeah and sorry really quickly I just to add on to that sorry. is the idea no no it's okay but like basically the idea the, the one thing i wanted to make sure that was i crystal clear here was that i you know people talk about the age of you know american imperialism right so it was the british and and, and then it was the americans and this this sort of baton passing of imperialism uh, i don't think we live in an age of american imperialism I I think we live in an age of corporate imperialism that happens to be currently the strongest military in the world is the Americans. So they all cloak themselves in the American flag. These are multinational companies. They're not American companies. They're in their companies and they happen to house themselves in the U S because that's convenient at the moment because the Americans have all the power. I, I bet you every penny I will ever make into the future that if the, theoretical Russian coup against the Americans, you know, was victorious and suddenly Russia became the next superpower or say China, these would all be Chinese companies all of a sudden, or they'd all be Russian companies all of a sudden, because that's the people whose military is going to stand behind them and push people around. This is pure corporate imperialism. And this is what we get. This is what this is all the same behavior we see from imperialist powers for all of history, except now they cloak themselves in a flag of convenience rather than a flag of because they're actually in charge of a country. I, I think that's the only difference. Sure, and, and we're going to see that it will continue, and it, it has been happening every year. I think there's been one scandal between Shell and Nigeria for the past five years, every year. Um, so 
I'm wondering, nowadays we're seeing at least some semblance of social control or uh, control from consumers on sort of these big companies. We're seeing a bit of backlash, a bit of backlash against United. <laughs> do, do you think there's, there's a, a reach for social media and sort of uh, the broad populations to affect impact on these big companies? I, I think I would say uh, very quickly that I think that we have the power. Consumers often have the power to do a lot of uh, a lot of good, and, and I think you know United will actually probably see a you know actual, an actual impact on on their brand. Thank God. Um, but the but oil is is different. I think it's we're too separated from it. It's it's in a global market, and we have an entirely different separate control. I like it's the kind of thing where you need the government to step in, and I don't really trust it at all. All right, we are unfortunately out of time, but Carson, hopefully you're going to stick around for a couple minutes and we're going to do the bonus show. The bonus show this week for the first time ever will be a separate link. So if you're uh, looking for the bonus show, uh, it's still going to be on the podcast. If you're on the podcast, you're going to get it, but it's going to come out in a couple of days. Uh, this will be probably what we're going to do going forward just to break things up a little bit. It gives us a little bit more freedom on the bonus show. So stick around for that. Uh, if you're listening live on the radio, check out greenmajority.ca. Thank you so much for coming in today, Carson, and uh, good first appearance. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we'll see everybody next week. Thanks so much for listening. See you. UT Green Majority, take care.